As you may remember, at the end of part one, the young Baron Deathmorts, the baddest astronomer in the world, threatened Jodrell Bank School of Astronomy and Astrophysics's radio astronomy data with a microwave oven. Luckily, our heroes had a plan to stop him. We've got to think of something. Let's hope that caretaker doesn't do something stupid. Step away from the microwave or I'll fire. That's it. Prepare to lose your data. Lento frequento. And after that spell was cast, the professors of astronomy and defense against the dark matter were able to debunk his bad astronomy and he fled, weakened. However, he was not destroyed, and over the course of the summer holidays, acts of bad astronomy started to appear in the muggle world. Nick, Stuart and Megan are now in their second year at Jodrell. Uh, I'd rather be out practicing Quidditch than doing this astronomy homework. Yeah, Nick, I wasn't paying that much attention either. You two really should be revising more. You've been spending far too much time worrying about that rumour that he who must not Baron be named... Deathmort. ...is trying to open the Chamber of Anti-Science. And, by the way, Europa is covered in ice, not mice. Blimey! Thanks, Megan. I don't know what we'd do without you. Anyway, Stuart... I think we really need to practice defense against dark matters if we're going to stop death morts from doing something terrible like releasing a secret Armageddon. I borrowed this old book from the University of Manchester Library. Someone with the initials PP has scribbled notes in the margins making great suggestions for fighting anti-science claims. Is it peer-reviewed by the Minister of Astronomy? You had better be careful, it may be dangerous. It all seems pretty reasonable to me. And it even has interviews with real astronomers. Let me try one. Acosio Jodcastus. The Jodcast. Already taking travel bookings for sun, sulfur and saunas in the hottest alien spires in the galaxy. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe and David Alt. The Jodcast. July Extra Edition. Hello there, and welcome to the July Extra edition of the Jodcast. Nick and I are here to guide you through this issue. So, hello, Nick. Hey, hi, hi, Dave. So, what have we got on this issue? Well, we've got Matt Burley, who is talking about white dwarves and extrasolar planets. We'll hear all of your reviews in iTunes. And we've also got Ask an Astronomer with me and Nick. So, Nick, tell us all about white dwarfs. Our sun will eventually evolve into a white dwarf, a highly compact object that will spend billions of years slowly cooling. I spoke with Dr. Matt Burley from the University of Leicester about his search for planets around white dwarves. My background is in white dwarf stars, uh, which I did my PhD in, and amongst the things I did in my PhD was look at white dwarfs in binary systems, so Mm -hmm. white dwarfs uh, with companions ranging from A stars down to, to M dwarfs um, at a range of separations. Some of them might have been interacting because they're very close and some wide. And from that, um, I got interested in finding very low mass companions to white dwarfs. So we're talking about brown dwarfs and then perhaps things even even lower in mass. Before we go on, let's talk a little bit about white dwarfs themselves. Can you explain just briefly for us what a white dwarf star is? 
So a white dwarf star is basically a, a dying star. So when the sun eventually runs out of hydrogen fuel that it's currently burning, uh, which will be in about 5 billion years' time, so nothing we have to worry about, it'll go, the sun will go through a few stages of evolution. It'll first grow up in, into a, a, what we call a red giant, um, so it'll expand in radius to around about uh, the same radius as the Earth's orbit. Eventually, the red giant will lose its, its atmosphere um, in what we call the planetary nebula stage. Um, and I think many people are familiar with the beautiful pictures of planetary nebula that, that Hubble produces, for example. Mm. And what's left behind after the, the atmosphere has been ejected is, is the core of the star, which is collapsing in on itself. Um, and the core collapses to a, a, a size about the same size as the Earth, but it packs in about somewhere between half a solar mass and and the mass of the sun into that, into that small volume. So these um, things are extremely dense then? These things are extremely dense. You know, I think the typical analogy is that uh, a teacup full of the material that a white dwarf is made from would weigh the same as an elephant. You know, it's, mm. it's incredibly dense material. And that, that white dwarf star is, is, is the dying embers of, of the star that was once like the sun. And white dwarfs are born very hot and what they do is just cool down slowly over time so white dwarfs range in temperature from around 100,000 degrees for the very youngest ones the ones that have been relatively newborn down to a few thousand degrees for the, for the oldest ones mm. um, It's an interesting point though because I mean most people think of a white dwarf as you say as the end of an evolution of a star mm -hmm. a dying ember as you say and therefore they think oh a white dwarf must be quite cool but you're saying these things are still quite hot, especially when, if they've just been created. Yeah, I mean, in fact, in fact, very few of them are cooler than the sun. The sun is, has a temperature of what, 5,500 degrees. There's a few white dwarfs cooler than that, but to get to 5,500 degrees takes them oh, more than 10 billion years. I mean, it takes them a long time. Right. So um, the youngest white dwarfs, say ones that were born within the last few hundred million years, are at temperatures anywhere between 10,000 and 100,000 degrees. So they're what we call the young white dwarfs and, and they cool down in a in a very steady and well understood way so actually white dwarfs are they're really good clocks for measuring the ages of clusters or, or the galactic disk um, because we, we think we understand how they cool very right. well so, so you see a white dwarf with a certain surface temperature yeah. and you think well if it was you know created roughly at the same time as other members of the dissociation it's with, you can, you can time it. Exactly. You can tell the age of a stellar cluster from the white dwarfs within it, mm. um, and the same with the galactic disk. And, and uh, in the future, we'll be able to do it for extragalactic objects, you know, other galaxies. Are these white dwarfs actually stars? Well, I mean, they differ from normal stars in a very important way. Well, they were once stars like the sun. We know that. They do not burn... Uh, hydrogen in their centre and fusion reactions like, a, like stars like the sun do. Um, but they are still a star. They, they are now shining basically because they've collapsed in on themselves and all that heat has to get out slowly. Mm. Um, that's, that's what powers them. So, yes, they are stars. There's another kind of star called a brown dwarf, otherwise termed a failed star because it never reached a high enough mass to start burning hydrogen in the first place in fusion reactions. Mm. White dwarfs at least once did burn hydrogen in fusion reactions, so yeah. They're stars. So your research now is based around finding companions to these white dwarf stars. Yeah. And you mentioned looking for planets around white dwarf stars. Tell me how you do that. So what we're doing is um, looking in the infrared uh, for 
very faint companions to white dwarfs. So we look in the infrared because um, planets uh, have uh, very low temperatures. Um, you know, the temperature of Jupiter is uh, roughly 300 Kelvin. So the, the peak of Jupiter's output is, is in the infrared. So we look in the infrared because that's where planets are expected to be bright. It's also where white dwarfs themselves are actually faint. Um, mm. They're much fainter in the infrared than they are in the optical. So it increases this, this contrast uh, between the two, gets a lot better. Um, so we're taking infrared images of white dwarfs. We take a pair of images a few years apart, and what we do is we look for an object that happens to be moving with the white dwarf. So all the white dwarfs we're looking at are fairly nearby to the sun. And because they're nearby, they have what we call high proper motions. That means that they appear to be moving quite quickly against background stars, the stars that are further away. And so we can see the white dwarf move against the background stars between our, our pairs of images, and we look for anything really faint, a really faint infrared source in the field of view that's also moving with the white dwarf. Mm. Now, you're making these observations in the infrared because, as you say, the planet is emitting most strongly in the infrared, mm -hmm. whereas the white dwarf is not. But it takes us to an interesting point, though. The planet itself is emitting radiation in the infrared. So you're looking for the direct radiation emission from the planet. Yes. Not the reflected light. Absolutely not. No, white dwarfs are, um, uh, as I said earlier, they're about 10,000 times fainter than something like the sun. And, and the planets we're looking for are, are at very wide orbits, you know, mu much further away in general than the Earth is from, from the sun. Mm. So... Um, the amount of reflected light is, is negligible. Now, what, what we're trying to find is the actual thermal emission from the planet itself. So the kinds of planets we're looking for are gas giants, like, like Jupiter. And it's an interesting fact. Now, I'd, I'll try and get my numbers right here, but something like two-thirds of the light you see from Jupiter is internally generated. It's heat that's, that's given off from when Jupiter was formed. You're talking about infrared, though, the infrared radiation. Infrared radiation, yeah. Is that right? Two-thirds of it is internally generated. It's internally generated, mm -hmm. so it's left over from when Jupiter formed. And the remaining one-third is presumably reflected. It's reflected, this reflected sunlight. Oh, I see. Now, from a, a planet around a white dwarf, we really expect almost no reflected light components, so it's all internally generated. Mm -hmm. Even so, even so, even though the white dwarf is not emitting strongly in the infrared, surely it must be much, much brighter than the planet in the infrared. It's still much brighter, yes. Um, but we're talking factors of, say, 10,000, as opposed to the, the contrast between a, the Sun and Jupiter is about a factor billion. All right, and, OK. And also, um, we're looking for things that are tens of times further away uh, from the white dwarf than the Earth is from the Sun. And, of course, we're looking at nearby white dwarfs, so all these factors together means actually that we're looking for things that are well separated from the white dwarf. We don't have to worry about the contrast. So one of the things we're not doing is using uh, this technique called adaptive optics, where you try to, on very large telescopes, you try to correct for the, um, the twinkling of the star, the seeing conditions, mm -hmm. to try and resolve very faint companions close in. We, we, we don't need to do that. We're looking quite a, quite a long way away from the white dwarf. Right. So you have a set of white dwarves that mm -hmm. you know are white dwarves, and you've observed them in the infrared with what? We're looking with very large telescopes. So we use the uh, new generation of 8-metre telescopes. Well, they've been around for almost 10 years now. So we're using um, 
the VLT, which is uh, run by the European Southern Observatory in Chile. And we use the two Gemini telescopes, which are uh, joint projects between uh, the UK, America, um, Brazil, Argentina, Australia. So they, um, one of those is sighted in Chile and one of those is sighted in Hawaii. So one looks at the northern sky and one looks at the southern. So those are the two telescopes we're mainly using. Um, some, uh, there are one or two other groups around the world trying to do the same thing as us, and they, they've used the Hubble Space Telescope, they've used the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is NASA's infrared mission. Um, so we're using all the, the latest facilities and the, the best instruments. All the best gear. All the best gear, and you need to, because yeah. we're, and even with those instruments, we're, go, we're pushing right to the limit of what they can achieve. Yeah. Well, you're demanding an awful lot, aren't you? You're asking to see something one ten thousandth fainter yep. than the main thing you're looking at, the wide dwarf. Yeah, we're, we're, we're asking to, to, to find objects as cool as 300 Kelvin. So, I mean, if I can put that into context, um, uh, the coolest brown dwarf currently known has a temperature of around 700 degrees. And there's a lot of work going on around the world to find brown dwarfs that are cooler. Now, of course, we would expect things lower in mass than a brown dwarf mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are old to be at temperatures of, say, less than 500 Kelvin. So we're looking for, in, in terms of these gas giant planets, we're looking for things between, say, 300 and 500 Kelvin. And, of course, um, the temperature of the Earth is, is roughly 330 Kelvin. So mm. we're trying to find things that are You're trying really to find things cool. which have got essentially the, the same temperature as the Earth. Yep, the same temperature Jupiter, that mm. kind of thing. Obviously, things slightly hotter than that will be easier to find, but we're pushing it down to that limit, yeah. It's remarkable. So you need at least two observations, presumably, for each white dwarf to see whether you've got a little companion. Yes, because we're looking for something that moves with the same motion as the white dwarf. So we need two observations, and and we need at least uh, a year's baseline between the observations to see the motion. Um, in some cases, we need more than a year's baseline. So it's a pretty long-term project. Why so long? I mean, you're, you, need, you need that much time to give things to shift? Uh, yeah, so the white, the white, some of the white dwarfs we're looking at have got very high proper motions. Um, and so we, within the space of a few months, they, they will move quite a few pixels on your detector. So they, they're easy to spot the motion, and, and likewise, it's fairly easy to spot the motion of any companions. Other white dwarfs in our sample have smaller velocities, and so uh, you simply have to wait that time for them to move enough pixels on your detector to unambiguously detect the motion, and also importantly to unambiguously detect the motion of, of anything much fainter. Right. It becomes increasingly harder to, to measure the motions of the fainter things in, in your images. Yeah. How many white dwarves are you looking at? Our current sample is about 40. Um, so we've selected uh, white dwarfs within about 50 light years of the Earth. Mm. Um, we select white dwarfs that are relatively young in white dwarf terms, so we're talking maybe 3 billion years and younger, um, because anything older, once the white dwarfs get older than that and their, pl- their accompanying planets are older than that, they are really too faint to see. Right. So we've got the age constraint, we've got the distance constraint, and also, of course, the distance constraint is that you, you want to separate easily be able to resolve your planet from the white dwarf. And if you look at things that are further away, then then they will become blended together right. just through a distance argument. So. so how have you done? Have you found any? No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But what's interesting is the limits. Um, so this is a difficult experiment. 
and we're, as I said before, we're really pushing these, even the world's largest telescopes, we're really pushing what they can do. Uh, but we are getting into a regime where we are sensitive to things of planetary mass. Now, we're not talking, we're not sensitive to things as low in mass as one Jupiter, but we are sensitive to things of a few Jupiters in mass. With our best case white dwarfs, so we have a couple of very young white dwarfs, which are only a few hundred million years old, um, we think we, we've been sensitive there to, say, two or three Jupiter masses, and we haven't found um, anything there. So we can say with some reasonable confidence that there are no planets going around those white dwarfs with, with masses higher than two or three Jupiters. For most of our sample, the limits are a little worse. Um, between, say, five and ten Jupiters is, is, our, is our limit. So we know that there's nothing more massive than between five and ten Jupiters going around that white dwarf. To draw further conclusions is a bit difficult. We know from the radial velocity surveys, the Doppler wobble surveys of, of main sequence stars, that although planets as high in mass as five to ten Jupiters do exist, they are rare. Mm. So the fact that in a sample of 40 white dwarfs we haven't seen anything with that mass isn't necessarily a surprise. Right. We would probably have had to get lucky. Yeah. Or you could say we've been slightly unlucky not to detect anything. Yeah. So we, we, we really need to, we need to do two things. We need to expand our sample size, so the number of white dwarfs we look at, and we need to increase our sensitivity. So we need to get, in all cases, we need to be sensitive to, say, one to two Jupiter masses. Now, unfortunately, to do this, we need bigger telescopes, <laughs> better instrumentation. Bigger than an eight-meter telescope? So, yeah. so we're thinking... Who are you going to talk to about that? We're thinking... Uh, so, for example, the European Southern Observatory has a project called the Extremely Large Telescope that it's now kick-started. So this will be a telescope that may be 30 or 40 meters in diameter, a huge behemoth. Boggles the mind, doesn't it? 30 meter it's, it's telescope. It's a huge construction project. And... Uh, you know, we're, they're thinking of this thing coming online around 2020. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it's a serious project now. It's not just some designer's dream that ESO have committed themselves to doing it. So and you're going to be first in line to well, say we want to use it's, it. It's certainly something I've put into the science case for, <laughs> for that telescope. The other in, uh, mission, the mission that will help us out is uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which mm. is uh, NASA's um, follow-on mission to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, now, James Webb Space Telescope will look in uh, exclusively in the infrared, and it will operate in space, obviously, uh, quite a long way from the Earth, um, so that it operates in a very cool region where um, you can make good infrared measurements. And JW, JWST will be very good for looking at white dwarfs and trying to find much less massive companions to them. Yeah. Mm. I have no doubt that one day somebody, hopefully me, will find a, a planet some mass going around a white dwarf and at that stage you know that there are there are two interesting aspects one is a philosophical thing um, one day our sun will turn into a white dwarf and you know it's interesting to speculate what will happen to our solar system what will happen to the, the outer planets the gas giants what will happen to the earth and so by finding planets around white dwarfs we can we're effectively looking into our own future yes what's yeah. going to happen to us so that's a kind of philosophical thing mm. presumably the inner planets get you know eaten up well that's, that's by a, the red giant stage that's, I guess. A, that's very interesting because current models or the latest models for for the evolution of the sun suggest that 
when the Sun hits the red giant stage, it will expand to around the radius of the Earth's orbit. Um, so the Earth will either get destroyed, it'll get swallowed up, or it'll just survive. Mm. But whatever happens, it'll get very hot. And uh, <laughs> I'm afraid life will not carry on on, the, on the, the Earth at that point. But it might be possible for life to carry on on a moon around Around, a planet say, like Jupiter, Jupiter or instance. Saturn, yes, and that's that's a very interesting thing. Mm. So, would any civilization that happens to be around there simply migrate to to the moons of Jupiter or Saturn? Yeah, exactly. Um, but we fully expect Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, all to survive the red giant stage and to survive to the white dwarf stage. So, um, you know, once we start finding planets around white dwarfs, we can start to really get constraints on how the solar system will evolve in these future. In the distant future that we're looking at. Yeah. How long does the star exist in the white dwarf stage? Um, well, forever, essentially. Once yeah. it's evolved to a white dwarf, it, it, it stays, it just cools. It slowly time. cools down over time. Yeah, so the, the universe itself is uh, around 13 to 15 billion years old. Um, and the oldest white dwarfs are around, well, we think they're around 3,000 to 4,000 Kelvin in temperature. So over the age of the universe, the, the first white dwarfs have cooled to that kind of temperature. Mm. They will just carry on cooling. Um, and the older they get, the slower they cool. So, yeah. I mean, eventually they will turn into an object, a hypothetical object that you might call a black dwarf, where its, it's temperature is so cool that you essentially can't see it. Um, you know, and it's almost at the background temperature of the universe, but the universe will have to be exceptionally old before that happens. It raises an interesting point, though, because uh, a star like our sun spins... 10 billion years as a star in the main sequence to go through a red uh, giant stage and then turns into a white dwarf and then spends the next presumably 10 billion years as a white dwarf, yes. slowly cooling. So our sun is a, a very active uh, object. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's young. Yes. It's a natural question to ask the chances of life around white dwarf stars if we're going to have lots of these white dwarfs mm -hmm. as a natural into stellar evolution, then we should ask what kind of planets exist around white dwarfs and whether life can exist. Well, exactly, and, and the question of life around a white dwarf, look, uh, your first instinct is that um, the white dwarf is very feeble, you know, it's 10,000 times less luminous than the sun, um, and young white dwarfs, because they're hot, they give out a lot of x-rays and a lot of ultraviolet radiation, right. which is very damaging for any biosphere, so... You know, very damaging for any life on the surface of a planet. Um, so those two things would make it unlikely that advanced life forms and intelligent life would, would be on any planet around a white dwarf. There are creatures which uh, biologists call extremophiles, so bacteria essentially, which, which live in very weird environments on Earth. We found back, you know, these micro microbial life in lakes underneath the Antarctic ice, in volcanic vents at the bottom of the sea, deep inside rocks. Mm. You, know, you find life in the most unlikely places. So I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility that at least microbial life might exist in rocky objects going around a white dwarf. Um, advanced life? I guess you could end up speculating that any advanced civilization might try to protect itself by building... There's this concept of these Dyson spheres, isn't there? Mm, yes. A bit like the Death Star, <laughs> where uh, an advanced civilization might build something like that. But I, I, I mean, this is pure speculation, but I would have thought that if a, a civilization was around when it knew its sun was uh, 
in its last days it might get on a spaceship and hop off to another stellar system even if it meant putting yourself in suspended animation or having to breed numerous generations on board before mm. you got there. But presumably you wouldn't have to go so far, right? You'd say, right, we're all off to Jupiter because that's, that's going to be the next safe neighbourhood when our star... When it gets to the Red Giant stage, maybe, yes. Mm. But once the Red Giant loses its atmosphere and you're left with the White Dwarf, it's going to be very cold out of Jupiter. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to get an escape eventually. Yeah. But it's so far in the future. I mean, you know, five billion years of evolution, mankind will have evolved into something completely different. So... well thank you very much indeed for talking to us and we wish you all the best on the hunt for planets around the white dwarves thank you right thanks Nick and that that was a a fantastic interview looking for planets around white dwarfs yes it's exciting stuff isn't it and especially now that the exoplanets extrasolar planets have have come back into the news certainly have uh, the very recent discovery of a hot Jupiter which has uh, water Water vapor. Yes, indeed. This is uh, news from a group of uh, NASA scientists using the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is a infrared space telescope, oh, okay. and uh, looking at a known extrasolar planet system. And the the, the host star has got this fantastic n- uh, name of HD one eight nine seven three three. And uh, the wow. that's <laughs> the, memorable. That's memorable, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and uh, the planet is uh, got the name of HD one eight nine seven three three B. And <laughs> this is a one of those so-called hot Jupiters. It's a mm-hmm. large planet, several times the size of Jupiter, hmm. orbiting very very close to its host star. And uh, using the space telescope Spitzer, these astronomers have discovered the presence of water in the atmosphere of this planet. Wow, okay. How, how do you do that, though? How do you find water on, on a different planet? Well, basically, by taking a look at the light coming from the star through the atmosphere of the planet, and some of that light from the uh, star is going to be absorbed by the planet's atmosphere, and it's through that absorption we actually can figure out what is doing the absorption. So we can discover uh. what is in the planet's atmosphere due to what, uh, how, how it is stopping light from its background star when, this, right, when the planet you. is transiting in front of that uh, host star. Right, so it's like having um, a piece of uh, red gel and holding it in front of a light. Sure. The, it's, it's the light that, that comes through that tells you that there's a red filter in front of it. Yeah, pretty much. And so the similar, water's acting like a filter. Yeah, a similar sort of idea. I mean, that red gel okay. is preventing anything other than red going through. So. Mm-hmm. And and this water is it is it going to be in any usable form? Well, unfortunately not, because the planet ah. is orbiting very very close to its host star. It is awfully hot, and the researchers uh, estimate that the surface temperature gets as much as nine hundred and thirty degrees Ooh. Celsius on the day side of the planet. Okay. <laughs> so it's rather hot. Yes. And so whatever water is in uh, the atmosphere of the, of this uh, planet is going to be steam. It is going to be awfully hot. Right. But so, still good for an alien sauna. Not bad for an alien sauna, that's right. Okay, right. I'll book tickets now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so from some fascinating news that's uh, happened very recently to our recent reviews, which have described us as substantive and fascinating. Yes, fantastic. They have so many wonderful reviews coming in from folk around the world. Thank you to everybody who has reviewed us on iTunes, and do please keep them coming in. So... 
our thanks to you know all, all you folk out there who are listening to us. But please, we really need you guys to review us on iTunes to increase mm. our standing and tell your friends. Definitely, yes. And we've got people from the UK, from uh, the US, and indeed from Australia. Yes, so hello to all our listeners in Australia. We know that there is at least one. <laughs> <laughs> so our thanks go to all of those people who have reviewed us since uh, our last call for reviews. And they are Fura, www.ichthud.com. <laughs> That's great. Ichthud. Someone, Ichthud. Someone <laughs> from the Redditch Astronomical Society, Mike Hatfield, mm -hmm. Skypilot, and Clinton Huxley. Mm, yes, who drives past Jodrell Bank on the way to work. Yes. Uh, and the Lovell Telescope never fails to inspire awe. It's just too big. That's very true. And uh, I had it in my back garden for a year, which was great fun. And indeed, my office overlooks the Lovell Telescope, so it's quite <sighs> nice to see that working yes. away, looking at the sky. Now we move on to Ask an Astronomer. Yes, indeed. We've had quite a few questions coming on in, and uh, thank you very much to everybody who was asking the questions. If you... Do you want to ask your questions? Always, please just go to www.jodcast.net and follow the links to the query pages. Send us mm -hmm. your questions and we'll answer some of them on the Jodcast. And of course, you can leave your feedback there. If you don't have iTunes, you can leave your feedback with us uh, on the website. Yes. So do send us an email through that. All feedback is gratefully, gratefully appreciated. Please let us know what you like about the Jodcast, what you don't like, how we can improve. Mm -hmm. We're always looking at how we can improve ourselves. Even if it is just telling us that we need weekly shows of an hour long, which which has been a call so far. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon because... Uh, There's only three of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but certainly do... Do send us uh, suggestions for people that you'd like us to interview. Yes, indeed. If, you want, if you've got some people in mind who you'd like us to go and interview, then please do suggest them and we will see what we can do. And also, if you are an astronomical society, we have something that you might be interested in. Nick? Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, we've got a 30-second plug, which we've decided to uh, pilot on the Jodcast. You've got 30 mm -hmm. seconds to describe who you are, where you are, what you do, and uh, anything else about your astronomical society, and we will broadcast that on the Jodcast. So please, if you've got uh, even the most modest recording equipment, please do record 30 seconds about you and your astronomical society. And so back to Ask an Astronomer. But unfortunately, Tim is on holiday at the moment. So you're stuck with just the two of us right. still. <laughs> so, um, Nick, are you ready to answer some questions, to be on the receiving end of the questions? Fire away. Right. So here's just a quick question for you to start off. It's from Ed Norrie, and he says, With so much of the universe near to our solar system having been mapped and the professionally built and manned telescopes always on the lookout, is there much chance of self-funded amateur astronomers discovering new planets or bodies? Well, I think the answer to this is twofold. Finding other planets, possibly not, because we think well, we like to think that we've found all the planets around our solar system Mm -hmm. that can that is within the reach of an amateur telescope however yes there's always a chance that you're going to discover something which the big professional astronomy observatories have missed in fact some of the more famous comet hunters are doing their best work with a simple six inch telescope and their dedication and their enthusiasm they're out there pretty much every clear night scanning the skies they know the sky backwards they can see something new and identify it immediately as something new. And this is how these discoveries are made. So you can make these you know, fascinating discoveries of near-Earth objects, comets, 
using very modest equipment. The six-inch telescope is going to be fine. Hmm. I think it's fair to say that even with all of the telescopes that there are across the world, there's still a lot of sky that is left unlooked at. That's right. I mean, the, the, the big professional observatories do tend to focus their surveys towards interesting regions of the sky, interesting to them for their own research goals. Mm. Uh, but there's a, a definite move towards trying to monitor the entire sky. However, that's done with, again, fairly modest uh, equipment. And there's always a chance that they're going to miss something. There's always a chance <laughs> that you with your modest telescope could be out there, right place, right time, looking in the right direction and see something new. Okay, so here's your main question uh, about acceleration due to gravity. Right. Uh, and this is something that, that comes up quite often with, with the ideas of zero gravity and such things. Uh, it's from Joe Jones, and he says, I have a handbook that has a table giving the acceleration due to gravity at intermediate altitudes above the surface of the Earth between naught and 1,000 kilometers. The acceleration figure for an altitude of naught meters is 9.8 meters per second squared, which is what we, what we usually use. Uh, and that for a thousand kilometers is 7.32 meters per second squared, a reduction of just two and a half meters per second squared. So that's, that's the numbers. But when we see pictures of astronauts on the International Space Station a mere 330 or so kilometers above the Earth, they're floating around more or less weightless. And that's within that 1,000 kilometers. So acceleration due to gravity should be about eight, according to that, that sort of figure that uh, he sent us in. What is going on here? Is my handbook wrong? Well, um, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by saying that, uh, no, the handbook is not wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. Gravity has not turned itself off. There's a difference between something appearing to be weightless as in astronauts on the International Space Station in orbit around the Earth and something in a region where gravity is not operational, where there is no gravity. Now, mm -hmm. in the case of the International Space Station, gravity is still operational. The gravity due to the Earth is indeed 7.3 to whatever meters per second towards the center of the Earth, and that's indeed why the International Space Station is in orbit. Gravity is pulling the space station constantly towards the center of the Earth. That's why the orbit is circular and it is going around the Earth. Now, the thing is, the, the space station and the astronauts are in free fall. It's a technical term for everything being falling towards the Earth constantly, but it is going at a velocity, a forward velocity, such that we could think of it that the surface of the Earth is falling away. Is it fair to say that... The, the, the space station is moving along. It's, it's trying to fall towards the Earth, but it keeps missing. Basically. That's one way of thinking about it, yes. The space station and the astronauts contained inside it is being pulled towards the center of the Earth due to gravity. However, the forward velocity means that it's basically shooting past the Earth at the same time. And, and just missing. And missing, yes. The way I always remember it being explained to me is if you throw a ball, then it'll, it'll land. If you throw it harder, then it'll go further and land back on the Earth, throw it harder again, and then you can you can throw it at just the right speed so that it'll be trying to, to fall towards the Earth and missing. That's right. Because of the because the Earth is a sphere, eventually the, the ball will disappear over the horizon, forever being mm. pulled towards the center of the Earth, but the Earth is curving away from the ball's flight at the same rate as the ball is being pulled towards the center of the Earth. And then, essentially, you are in orbit. If, if we talk about uh, a, a lift falling towards the... Falling, well, the, the, the lift cable breaks, 
mm -hmm. you're falling towards the center of the earth, a mm -hmm. very, very long lift shaft, then the lift is falling towards the center of the earth. You're falling towards the center of the earth. Mm -hmm. You are essentially weightless. Professor Stephen Hawking went up in a plane and went on one of these uh, what's called parabolic flights, oh, yes. where you climb to a very high altitude and then the plane just drops and... It basically you, you falls have, out of the sky, essentially. falls out of the sky, and you have that experience of weightlessness. Right. And it's, it's how sometimes people are trained or people, how, how people are given that feeling of weightlessness. So how long can the, how long can the plane be in free fall before it, it has to stop and, and turn back <laughs> up again and start becoming a plane rather than a rock? 30 seconds or something. It's enough for you to get that feeling of, of what it's like to be on board the space station. Wow, fantastic. Okay, well, thanks, Nick, for answering those questions. My pleasure. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this issue of the Jodcast. Coming up next month, we have an interview with Dr. Martin Bureau. Yes, I talk and with uh, Dr. Martin from uh, Oxford uh, about galactic evolution. I mean, we, we know, we like to think we know what galaxies all are, these you know, lovely island universes full of stars and what have you, but mm -hmm. they evolve just like stars just like planets solar systems like everything else in in the universe so they change over time and we're going to talk to uh, dr martin Buer about that excellent and uh, from galaxies and their evolution to galaxies and actually spotting them we'll be talking to dr chris lintot about galaxy zoo getting people like you people listening to the jodcast people who are just interested in astronomy to help categorize galaxies yeah, how cool is that? Me getting doing professional I, astronomy at home. I have signed up and I've I've already categorized a couple of galaxies. So really, I'm doing my bit. Yeah, yeah, that's great fun. So what, great. what what do you do basically? Um, Go on, give us a preview. So, give us a give us a teaser. Well, the galaxies that they are trying to look at uh, fall into different categories. They're either elliptical or spiral, going clockwise or anticlockwise, or the the pictures that they have are just completely unrecognizable. And what you have to do is go through the tutorial, learn how to recognize a spiral, learn how to recognize an elliptical, and learn how to press the don't know button. <laughs> and and just you, you sit there and you look at the galaxies and use your own initiative, you use your discretion to say, yes, that's an elliptical, that's a spiral, or that's someone cleaning the face of the telescope. Fantastic. Yeah, and we'll learn more about that next month. Definitely. And, of course, at the beginning of the month, we have The Night Sky with Ian Morrison telling you what to see in August. So, thanks then to Nick. My pleasure. It's always, it's always fun. So, as I said, that brings us to the end of the issue, and we will be back on the 1st of August with the next edition. Do keep your feedback coming in. Uh, keep your emails coming. Keep your questions coming for Ask an Astronomer. Until August... Goodbye. And goodbye, everybody, and thank you very much for listening. And so the school year progressed, but we'll fast forward through all the teenage angst and misunderstandings and other stuff like that to exam time, when, as usual, Nick, Stuart and Megan find themselves in great danger. Baron Deathmorts has opened the chamber of anti-science, and Lepus's monster is prowling through the school, stupefying students. Quick, in here. It's a bit dark in here. Luminous Planetarium! Oh my gosh. 
Baron Deathmorts. How... how did you survive? After you uncovered me masquerading as a student, you thought you had destroyed me, but I was able to keep part of my bad science soul alive by spreading it across several hoaxes. I slowly gained a large following and was able to rebuild my bodily form. Now my bad astronomy will destroy you all! We can't fight him alone. Gosh! The old book! It, it's glowing! Blimey! A figure's rising out of it! I recognize him from the Defense Against Dark Matters lessons. It's the great aura of Phil Plate. That's right, Nick. I was only a postdoc the first time Baron Death Mortis was at large, but I remember my review of Armageddon as if it were yesterday. I swore right then I would help in the fight against bad astronomy wherever it appeared, so I wrote myself into this book. Well, we've listened to plenty of astronomy podcasts this year, so together we just might be able to destroy Death Mortis. A great battle scene ensued with lots of fancy CGI effects. No, they're really cool. We, we spent a lot on them. <clears throat> Sorry. Nick released podcast after podcast, but as Megan Stewart and the spirit of Phil Plate issued a combined deep confusion charm against Death Mods, Nick was struck by a glancing blow by a stray spell. He awoke several days later in the hospital wing. What? What? What happened? It was fantastic! We think we got him, Nick! Although some of him might have still survived... We don't know if we destroyed all the hoaxes. Not to worry. I've restarted the Order of the Skeptics to keep an eye on things, so there shouldn't be too much to worry about for now. Anyway, you have a lot of those get-well presents, Nick. Do you mind if I have one of those all-flavor beans? Help yourself. Ugh! Moon dust flavor! Now, if you two don't mind, I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed, or worse, expelled. In that intro and outro of the Jodcast, John Morgan was Baron Deathmorts, Captain John Tadrazak was the caretaker, Arapelody was Nick, Paula Cartwright was Stuart, Robin Carlyle was Megan, and Phil Plate was himself. No attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Harry Potter, which of course remains the property of J.K. Rowling and Bloomsbury Publishing. On a different note, are you a composer? One of the requests from our feedback is to have more incidental music in the Jodcast, and so we'd like to turn to you, our audience. If you have some free Podsafe music at all, or would like to compose some, then please let us know, whether it be short stings or music beds. So please get in touch with us at the website at www.jodcast.net. So until the 1st of August, goodbye. <laughs>